Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And Ann, we have so much to talk about. It almost feels normal these days with all the new movies we have to talk about. There's Lover's Rock, which opened the New York Film Festival last week. Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, uh, which played a few nights later. There's a movie that doesn't have the word rock in the title, Chicago 7, which we can finally talk about. So there's so much to go through, not to mention a Toronto audience winner. And I don't even know where to begin, but why don't we begin with uh, New York Film Festival as an experience? Uh, Because when we did last week's live episode with Eugene Hernandez, it was just kind of getting started. And, you know, for me, going to a drive-in, that was kind of a fun experience. But I'm actually more fascinated to hear first about your experience, because you've been doing New York from Los Angeles this year. Yeah, I have. And uh, they have this, um, you know, as we all got used to Toronto's virtual platform, uh, New York has one as well. And I got invited to um, the premiere of On the Rocks. And uh, so that really requires that you go in and watch something live at the same time. There were two of those this week. One of them was New York. One of them was Netflix, Chicago, a trial of the Chicago seven. So you have, you have that adrenaline thing. Like you have to get to the screening on time. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Cause earlier in the year we were talking about like, what will virtual buzz look like when you don't have these screening events? And now we're kind of experiencing it. Both similar because what you had was, was you had people, a group of people all watching at the same time. It was presumably the, the, the combo of, of, premier um, crest, casting crew, press, media, you know, and then the people who bought tickets uh, to the New York Film Festival. And in each case, you had all the um, social media going right after. And- Hopefully all right after and not during, because you wouldn't be doing that if you were in a screening room. So that's an open question. It was, it was, uh, so I, I enjoyed doing that, but you don't get the sense of seeing it with a group of people. You, you, you can share the social media response and figure out what people thought from that. Um, I would say that the trial of the Chicago 7 probably got a much bigger and better response than On the Rocks did. What was your sense? Well, I mean, On the Rocks, it sounds like they actually had the closest thing to doing a movie premiere in New York right now, which was a a very enthusiastic drive-in premiere in which Bill Murray and Marlon Wayans and Sofia Coppola and uh, Felicity Jones all came out. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Rashida Jones. And uh, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, that movie, it's not uh, it's not as big an event kind of movie as Chicago 7. So to have them both premiere on the same night, of course, the big star Aaron Sorkin ensemble movie is going to have, you know, a bigger imprint one way or another. Uh, but it seems like the Sofia Coppola film probably went off as, as well as you could expect for the kind of very, you know, low-key character-based dramedy that it is. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a very particular kind of contrast. Now, the, our Zoom backgrounds for anybody watching the, the video version is, <laughs> is even more dramatic contrast because I've got Lover's Rock, you've got Chicago 7. Let's start with Lover's Rock because I would have loved to see this in Alice Tully Hall. It's an hour and eight minutes of, you know, mostly just dancing, but it's great dancing. It's, I think, a very fun kind of contained piece of of filmmaking. It's part of this larger small acts project for Steve McQueen. But, um, you know, how we choose to categorize it, film, TV, I don't know. It it was just a really satisfying experience for me uh, to watch it first on my own and have a great time with it. And then at the drive-in the night later. 
I wish I'd seen it with people, but I have to compare it to my experience of watching American Utopia, because sometimes what I do when I'm tired of sitting at my computer and actually tired and I can't cast to my TV because the Wi-Fi isn't good enough or whatever, I end up on my bed. I end up watching something on my computer on my bed. And with both American Utopia and Lovers Rock, I could move around. I could rock out with my dance party watching it and it was really fun and I, I actually compare the two because it's really about a sort of orgiastic almost trance-like um, response to to the way that the camera is moving with the music and it's imbued in the movies too because they're both kind of communal responses to dark times I mean the lovers rock takes place in 1980 it's this British West Indies community and it's all a bunch of teenagers at a house party and there's a slight conflict that happens but mostly it's about the kind of the the sort of real utopic vibes of that dance floor including this acapella rendition of, of silly games that, that i think is, is uh, something else that's reprised a couple times also the just the way that the, the reggae and as the night um moves on you have this kind of shifting you know early on the boys and the girls are separated then they're very much together and then it becomes much more the boys as as there's more uh, weed consumed and many right. it gets more more masculine in terms of the aggressiveness of the dance floor. That's a really interesting what point. a woman at the center of it who yeah just great newcomer and it's fascinating to to anticipate the rest of this thing. I mean, yes, Amazon's going to put all five features out uh, in November, and it was produced by BBC. But um, I mean, I've seen one other. I've seen Mangrove, which is a two-hour, basically a courtroom drama, also very strong, but it, but a completely different kind of storytelling. And I'm looking forward to seeing the rest. New York Film Festival has one other, Red, White, and Blue, which stars John Boyega. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that this would technically be a kind of a miniseries Emmys play at some point down the line. But in this weird kind of year, that's exactly what they're going to do. But I would I would say there's 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 no reason not to treat these as movies while we can. Critics groups will have that opportunity. Lovers Rock is definitely a movie, and one of the things that's exciting about it and joyful about it is the exuberance of the filmmaking and the um, high level of the filmmaking. There's a way that those cameras roam around the space that I've never seen before. And it, oh yeah, he's working with a new cinematographer, a younger guy who did uh, Skate Kitchen, among other things. And uh, it's really amazing the way that he kind of captures something. You know, the dance is choreographed. He's a credited choreographer, but it still has this kind of organic quality. Amazing way that that camera just shifts and flows and moves in the space, the way it's edited together and the way that it's showing uh, different things and looking at different things um, as, as everybody's obviously um, performing in a 360 degree uh, universe. Well, one more thing on this, and then we can move on to your Zoom background, because here's what I, I would posit to you. In this incredibly weird year for uh, movies jockeying for spots in an award season that keeps kind of slipping beyond our grasp because, you know, the, so many things have changed, why not position Lover's Rock as an Oscar movie? It's not going to get any less of a theatrical release than other movies that will be uh, submitted for, for uh, you know, Best Picture. Because Why not? It doesn't fit the rules. Well, but how, how, how have the rules shifted in, in a way that we couldn't qualify? Television series. And well, but this isn't, this is a movie, right? You said it's a movie. 
There, there, listen, tell I'm, I can tell you I've been approached by the awards uh, consultant on it, and they're looking for me to write about it for the Emmys next year. No, no. <laughs> and we got to see the whole thing as a package. The Emmy thing is to be added as a package, and it works on its own. That's kind of what I think that what I just saw, Lovers Rock, is a very good movie, and I will happily put it on my 10 best list this year. And I agree with you in theory. I do. I agree with you. This movie should be in consideration for the Oscars. All right, so let's talk about the, the movie that already is. It's behind you and your background because it's clearly the one that, that, that sort of won the media cycle of the week. Chicago 7 had that big uh, debut on Netflix. It was, uh, as you might expect, a giant star-filled ensemble picture from Sorkin. And, you know, we've been hearing about this project for years. Spielberg was going to do it in like 2007 or something like that. For a number of directors, uh, Sorkin himself wrote it a few times, and then Sorkin made Molly's Game. And, and that came out in 2018. Now, I was not a huge fan of his directing on that movie. It was clearly a first-time director. Kind of all over the place. And what he was doing. But he learned. This guy's smart. This is a very smart guy. And uh, this movie is so much better. It is so much well uh, better directed. Um, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He's intertwining the uh, flashbacks to the evolution of the riots in Chicago outside the Democratic National Convention in 1968 with the following year's trial. And, and, and he's, he's going and he's focusing on these very colorful, <laughs> really great uh, uh, characters uh, led by Abby Hoffman and Sasha Baron Cohen and um, stolen, stolen by Jeremy Strong yet again. Uh, he's funny as Jerry Rubin, but I would not say that Jerry Rubin steals the show from Sasha Baron Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen is transcendent as Abby Hoffman. I would even say that you know, the movie I thought was fine for, for what it is. I found it to be kind of stagey and old fashioned to a large extent. But but Abby Hoffman is such an amazing character. And the gamble of having Sasha Baron Cohen play this character is that it could seem like shtick because he's a British guy who does prank stuff. And he's so believable. I mean, I was with him all the way. With him. He did his thesis in college on Jewish activists in the anti-war movement and he knew all about Abby Hoffman and he fought uh, early on to get the role and hang uh, and he was attached to the project throughout. Um, it's interesting because someone like Eddie Redmayne, um, who's a very good actor, uh, won an Oscar for Theory of Everything. Um, a lot of fake American accents in this He's in a lot of fake Americans. The one, uh, Abby Hoffman was really nervous about the one he had to do for Abby Hoffman because it's a very specific uh, Boston-ish Massachusetts accent, and it's yeah. I'm not sure, I'm not sure he got it right, but uh, uh, it, anyway, these guys um, are going against each other. That's the third story that's being intertwined here. It's it's about the difference in how to fight a revolution, um, and Hoffman goes against uh, uh, Tom Hayden, who is more of the establishment insider uh, figure, and it I don't think Eddie Redmayne may have realized how much. Um, the movie is slanted toward Abby Hoffman's. Uh, the sympathies are definitely with Hoffman, not with. He's the hero. He's, I mean, he's the ultimate hero. And then you have, um, you know, Mark Rylance is sort of the their defense attorney. Yeah, William Kunstler. Uh, I, I, I remember this. I was young, but I remember it. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously don't, but I was actually fairly familiar with the case because my first year going to Sundance. The opening night film was Brett Morgan's documentary, Chicago 10, 
which had an ensemble cast playing all of these characters through rotoscope animation. And, you know, it's not, it's not a perfect movie, but I do recommend people check it out because they're, they're very similar. They both follow the court transcript in certain ways. And there are things that I knew about that I'm realizing as I talk to people about the movie, one of the things that's valuable about Chicago 7 is that people actually don't know a lot of the details of what happened in that courtroom, especially what happened to Bobby Seale, who was bound and gagged because, you know, he refused to shut up about the fact that they wouldn't let him have a lawyer. Um, and, and that's in both of those movies. And it's, it's really shocking. And that's I think more uh, news to me, I, I have to admit, um, just it isn't that I didn't know he was badly treated. It's the image of seeing this extraordinary man bound and gagged that just kills you. It's it's really rough to watch. Yeah. And I, and I think I mean, there's more of a movie to be done on the Black Panthers at that particular moment, the stuff that happened with Fred Hampton, obviously there was a whole tragedy there. It's more of a, a sort of a subplot here because the focus is the trial and there will probably be some conversations about that as well. But the, the thing about this movie that, that I do think is impressive is that it just, it keeps moving along. It's like a tight two hours, like just a few minutes over two hours, but it encompasses a lot. Like he goes from setting us up for the, the, police showdown with protesters jumps straight into the trial and then tells you what happens through flashbacks That's right. and you know by the end it's, it's pretty impressive how much it ground it covers no and how timely it is because uh, when you see how how badly uh judge julius hoffman who's played very well by frank langella behaves um you're reminded of how bad it was then and how bad it is again now and and the dangers that we're confronting now and of course the the film is is coming out in, in, ahead of the election for a reason because they want everyone to to recognize uh the parallels i mean we went through nixon and we went through all of that and we came out the other side with watergate and and we made progress over the last few decades progress that is in great danger of sliding back well, also, there's this, um, you know, we're constantly talking about the courts. We lost RGB last Friday and uh, something about the dynamic here where it's like clearly the justice system was stacked against them, but they still had certain beliefs that were backed up by the kind of fundamental ethos of American democracy. And that's what they're fighting for, even though they know they're probably going to lose in some capacity. Like that seems like something really valuable. To, it's a good talking point kind of a movie. It's heavy handed, but not to not obnoxiously so, which is a, a difficult line to walk. And so I, I did appreciate that. And uh, it reminded me of the conversations that came up around the post. It's very much like this year's The Post in terms of the tone. I would argue. And I would also suggest that was a rushed movie. This yeah. movie does benefit from all the time that went into it, all the different ways that it, it's really well written. It has some amazing dialogue in it. One of my favorite points in the movie is when these two guys who are members of the Chicago Seven are saying, why are we here? You know, what are we doing here? People that their names we don't even know. And they were there because they were the ones that could be thrown out. Right. Well, <laughs> well more specifically, what he says is uh, this is the Academy Awards of Trials. It's an honor to be nominated. I love <laughs> talk about Talk about self-awareness. I mean... Let, let's get into that. So this is like the kind of conventional 
Oscar bait. And that's not a knock on it. It's that it's a big starry ensemble movie that appeals to a wide set of people. And as I said on Twitter, it's boomer for the Academy. Boo- you know, it's it's Cat- Cat- the boomers. boomers. It's it's. And what I mean by that is that they're like me. <laughs> they lived through it. They remember it. They're liberals. They care about this stuff. It's playing right to their sweet spot. And but the question is how the um, you know, we know Sorkin will get director and and um, screenplay and I'm sure it'll get best picture too and Netflix isn't going to miss a trick the question is how they um, campaign for the actors because there's so many good ones yeah. and my guess is that they'll take Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen, Cohen and put them in, in lead and they'll let um, Jeremy Strong and and the extraordinary Mateen um, he, he is just extraordinary in this Yaya Abdul Mateen the second who also good. I, I do think it's, it feels I, like Sasha's year. I mean, that is a story you can tell. He, Sasha Baron Cohen is, is so, you know, he's not revered, but he is somebody who is, I think, appreciated for what he does. And to do something like this, it's like, it's like beyond that is-, is He's not beloved or revered. I would say that he's um, popular, though. He's appreciated, yeah. I mean, there was that one time he showed up in the Oscars as Ali G without telling anyone in advance he was going to be in character. So I don't know if that helps or hurts the chances. Oh, uh... he does have going for him. He's a comedian. And comedians who rise to drama often have a lot of wind in their sails, like Robin Williams or someone like that. So so he's, he's in that category of someone who's rising to the occasion of drama. Yeah, well, it's going to be fascinating to watch how that evolve that conversation evolves because you know we have we certainly have an awards uh, field of sorts we also don't have a lot of movies left to anticipate i mean we'll be hearing about mank soon enough i'm sure but what about uh nomadland winning the audience prize at toronto not a huge upset or surprise there no, but it is fascinating usual is that you never have the golden lion winner in uh, Venice also winning uh, the TIFF uh, popular award because it's such different audiences. You know, you have a sort of rarefied jury in one case, even though they went for Joker last year. Um, and then you have the big audience in, in Toronto usually. So who knows who voted this year? But um, with yeah. a slimmer slate of things, Nomadland clearly emerged. Yeah, and- there was this sort of theory that well, maybe some something much smaller and more obscure will win that audience prize because anybody could watch anything. And the reality is that this movie just had so much buzz behind it. It was almost like a foregone conclusion. That, And then, you know, so no surprise there. I mean, there's a long, long, long haul until you get to the Oscars, but being the front runner isn't necessarily a good thing, but that's where it is. So Nomadland, I, I, here's here's what I felt like. So Nomadland was, had a lot of noise around it because of the event and, and uh, this happens and, and it's going to go to New York Film Festival soon but it, it does feel like Chicago 7 is this giant machine that could devour a, a, a quiet little movie like Nomadland and I'm curious to see how Searchlight approaches that particular challenge now that we have two clear kind of front runners in, in a number of categories I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Looking at right now, I mean, if you if you think about the back-to-back screenings of Chicago 7, mounted by Netflix, and On the Rocks, mounted by A24 and Apple at New York Film Festival, you have a situation where um, Netflix didn't go to the festivals, right? 
So it's sort of, it's doing its thing without them. And it's achieving a great deal of attention without them. And, and that's, I think, what's, what's going to happen is that Netflix has an entire slate, one after the other. This is the first one. There's one after the other to come. And they're going to keep making noise and they're going to keep getting, and they're big movies. They're all big Hillbilly Elegy and, and Mank, the David Fincher, which even Aaron Sorkin is promoting himself as a, one of the great movies he's ever seen. So we'll see. We'll see where yeah, I, the theatrical distributors are almost at a disadvantage. They're not playing the game as, as well. Yeah. You really have to be attentive to, you know, just, the tools at our disposal and how we can respond to things and the different, I mean, the, the next phase of all of this is, you know, we, we're not going to have handshaking and, and lunches and all that kind of stuff. So. No, you know. arts campaigners um, are recognizing several things. One who cares <laughs> given everything that's going on. I like those lunches, but I'm not a voter. So. Who, you know, the election's going to drown everything. There's going to be this long haul now. Right. And then, Three, we'll have theaters opening again in New York and L.A. And, and you can't do anything without those cities and without those theaters. You can't platform a movie. Kajillionaire in, in, this week is opening on 500 screens without New York and L.A. And, and that's because it's going to go straight to PVOD in a few weeks. Yeah. yeah. And I hope people see it somehow. It's a great movie. and It would be a shame for it to get lost to the noise of the season. But, but that had great performances and it could have been an Oscar contender, she said. For Evan Rachel Wood, yeah. In, in, under these conditions. Yeah, it, it, is, it is fascinating. I mean, early in the year when the pandemics have started, we were saying, well, maybe never, rarely, sometimes, always, or something like that. But now it, it's that argument about the kind of really small stuff is starting to seem a bit weird. Although, I don't know. I mean, now we're looking at the fall. You said, you know, Netflix has got a bunch of stuff that's coming, but a lot of stuff has been taken off the calendar. Just this week, we learned that West Side Story has been pushed to next year. No idea what the plan is with French Dispatch. We haven't heard anything. So it, there are a lot of holes. I mean, it, it could be a very, very narrow field of, of actual movies vying for awards attention that have the resources behind them to, to kind of have real campaigns. So we're waiting to see what happens to Universal's News of the World with Tom Hanks, Paul Greengrass. Uh, we're, we're waiting to see what happens with Denis Villeneuve's Dune, uh, which, which I'm excited to see and I hope it comes out this year. Um, and that's probably the movie I'm most excited to see. <laughs> I'll ask you about, about one movie that, that's been making the rounds because I'm kind of excited about its awards prospects because it's a short film from Pedro Almodovar. Did you get a chance to see The Human Voice? I did. I loved it. The Tilda Swinton. Right. Um, it's, it's playing New York Film Festival. Uh, I think it's playing London as well. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty excited uh, for people to see it. I think you can see it if you buy tickets. Yeah, you can buy tickets to New York Film Festival from anywhere in the U.S. and watch this movie. It's about and an hour. Beautiful. And 39 minutes. Language debut. <laughs> yeah, it's very smart of Pedro because I mean, the way he was talking about it, and back when he was nominated for Pain and Glories, when he started talking about it, he was saying it was a way for him to feel what it was like to shoot in English so that he could try to make a feature in English. And that it seems like, it, you know, that this is what he needed to confirm that he could do it, working with Tilda on this amazing set, you know, not to spoil too much, but all the physicality of it is, 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 is really remarkable. And, uh, and Sony Classics bought it 
So you know what they've got in, in store for that. They're totally going to do an awards push for this thing. And, and how do you beat Pedro Almodovar in the short film category, right? I don't think there's anything that could. So that's kind of cool. I mean, honestly, of all the awards narratives to follow, that's one that I think will be really fun to, uh, to track as we move along. I mean, I, I, what other kind of surprises are there in store? There's not a lot that could be, you know, sort of... That are being held back because the distributors don't know what to do with them, like the Taika YTT Next Goal wins or the Tom McCarthy Stillwater. Um, you know, we don't know um, whether Mike Mills, Come On, Come On with Joaquin Phoenix. These are movies that were supposed to be in the mix, and they're, the distributors are just waiting to see if audiences are coming back. If there was a yeah. depressing blow to the whole industry. Basically. Yeah, it's frustrating because these a lot of those movies sound pretty good, and if they are beholden to award season narratives that are elusive, then they could be caught in limbo, and we just don't know when we're going to get. A I mean, Wes Anderson, it sounds like he's already getting ready to make another movie. You know, people will move on. We've been convinced by Terry Fremo to go back to Cannes. That's, That's another whole question. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's happened. What, what will happen with Cannes? You know, I mean, hopefully it can happen. Movie. He was supposed to go to Cannes last year. I, I don't see him going to Berlin and rushing the release out before the Oscars. I just don't. It, that's an option, but I they haven't uh, they haven't made the decision. It's a good theory. We got to get Thierry back on Screen Talk to to talk that's us through fine. it. Or Find out what things away. But the other thing I was thinking about was the Sundance thing because it doesn't sound like Sundance is trying to position itself as like the new Toronto or whatever. But there are some movies that could potential like the Taika Waititi film I mean that you know that he's been going to that festival since Eagle versus Shark I mean that would be a perfect Sundance launch kind of a movie I just mentioned could go there I don't see French Dispatch going there though no, no definitely not I mean again we don't even know what form that festival is going to take so that's another factor they're saying they're sick stick with what would be a, a a Sundance movie but I think the movies we you know Mike Mills Taika Waititi, Tom McCarthy, those movies are totally Sundance movies. Yeah, and, and a lot of them may not even be totally done and don't want to just like speed out into the unknown terrain. But if you can use the Sundance platform, then it makes a lot of sense because you have distance from the, sun, from the festival platforms that have already occurred. I mean, it, it is interesting when we had Eugene on last week and we brought up the awards, he was like, but that's like a really long time from now. I mean, it really is not... We're not in the thick of award season the way we normally would be, and it's weird. But we are uh, it also. I mean, I have to tell you, I'm really busy. That's <laughs> good. You should be busy. IDAs, which is the International Documentary Association screenings for the documentaries that are coming up. There's never been such an enormous field of docs. And this, the various countries are submitting their foreign language films, so we have to track what's going on over there. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, people are submitting shorts to festivals and all of that. It's, there's a whole other thing going on. I mean, what's weird is if J James Bond doesn't open in November or if there aren't any big scale movies competing for the Oscars, that would be a tragedy. Well, you know, over the summer we said, well, maybe it's Tenet. Now we know that's not probably the case. So that doesn't leave much else. 
if Bond doesn't come along. There just isn't, there just hasn't been that kind of movie this year. I mean, even by the time the earlier ones, like a Black Widow or whatever would have come along, all this stuff started. So, uh, so it is a real open question if we're going to have a bigger movie. But you know what? Those movies will be fine when they get out in the world. Millions of dollars are behind them. I'm much more interested in the Nomadland side of things and what movies can actually benefit from the weirdness of the season. I'm not going to feel too bad about it if we don't have a blockbuster, you know, jumping around and complicating things. I mean, come on, really? And a movie like Pixar's Soul. Yes, that uh, that I hope we get to see soon. Bigger platform and becomes more important. And it's also the first time that they focused on African-American subjects in a, in a big feature. So that's right. exciting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we should pat them on the back for that because, you know, what the hell took so long, but it's good that they made that movie. It looks fantastic. And it's too bad that it didn't get, you know, festival launches going back to, to Cannes, which was had it in its uh, official selection. But, um, you know, it seems like a no-brainer. So we have plenty to anticipate. And next week, I don't even know what's going on. I'm sure we'll find some things to talk through. There'll be, uh, we're, you know, AFI is coming up and other documentary things, maybe even Mank, who knows. And uh, if nothing else, we'll just come back to the movies we talked about this week because there's a lot more to discuss. So, and I know you're busy, but rest easy and try to enjoy the weekend and I'll see you soon.